Well, I've already got permission, apparently, to, uh, to act like a child, so that's fantastic. Praise the Lord. Open your Bibles with me tonight to Philippians chapter number one. Let's open the, the word tonight to Philippians chapter one. And I'd like to call your attention to verses three through eight. Let's go ahead and do this. Let's go ahead and read this passage together and pray, and then we'll, we'll dive right into God's word tonight. Philippians chapter one, verse three, we see the apostle Paul writing to the church of Philippi, and he says this, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ." even as it is meet or fitting for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we come before you tonight, Lord, a people redeemed and rescued and bought back from slavery from sin, from our own self-destruction and rebellion and running away from you, we come before you tonight loving you because you first loved us. Lord, we are grateful. Our hearts are full. We have seen, Lord, we've seen your mighty hand already through these presentations and what you are doing to redeem even more people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus is friend of sinners tonight. Thank you for doing this great work. Thank you for beginning this great work in our hearts. And thank you that it's you that holds on to us and not the other way around. Thank you that it's you that holds on to us and performs this work until the day of Jesus Christ. Father, I am so conscious tonight that there is nothing that I can bring, there's nothing that I can share, there's nothing that I can build tonight from behind this pulpit, but God, we want to submit this night and these minutes that we have to you. Holy Spirit, we, we welcome you, we love you, and we ask you, would you take control of this time that we have together? Would you build up your church? Would you edify and encourage and just help your church here in Lebanon? For your glory and for the good of your people, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. When I saw um, the schedule uh, for the missions conference, I've been here for two missions conferences, and this is the first time I've been allowed to preach, probably the last time. Uh, But immediately I began to think, wow. I get to preach at Faith Baptist. What in the world should I preach? What could I preach? What, what would the Lord have me to, to bring? Uh, and I don't say this to, to flatter, but it, it is a high bar. It is a high bar. Uh, not just because you are such a giving church, such a loving church. And, and I mean this again, not flattering. I, I know of no church that I've ever visited that does as much as this church does. And I don't just mean sending money. I mean from as young as three and four years old, from, from the time they set foot in this, in this church, you are training them and teaching them to care about uh, the cause of world missions. You teach them about a global God right from the very beginning. And I want to commend you for that. And so I began to think, what do I preach at a church like this? What could I possibly preach? 
And I thought, I can't, there's no way I can offer better in-depth Bible preaching than what they already get, and that's true. I can't offer deeper missions insight than these missionaries who've been doing the work 30 plus years or, or even more. I've been on the field for three and a half years. Um, it's kind of funny. I was at a church the other day and they said, we have veteran missionary Scott Newton with us. I'm like, <laughs> veteran missionary. That's right. And a name tag with that printed on there, veteran missionary Scott Newton. But how am I going to offer deeper missions insight than my goodness, <laughs> uh, what we heard this morning. Uh, praise God what we heard this morning. That brother, I don't know where you are, but that blessed my heart. I know that blessed this church. And that comes from, that's, that doesn't just come from a study in books. That comes from, and of course you studied, well, maybe a little bit. Uh, but that comes from a life lived. That comes from sufferings dealt with. That comes from uh, the persecution that comes from living a life sold out and dedicated to paying whatever price it takes to serve and worship God. And I thought, I can't do those things, but what I can offer is what God's been teaching me through my few years on the mission field. And I want to start that way. I want to tell you just a little bit about what God's been teaching me in the, the past couple of years. I'll start this way. I'll start by telling you what I've been taught to focus on as a missionary. I thank God I've had uh, a lot of teaching both from my parents and other places and uh, Bible colleges and things like that. Uh, and thank God for all of that. But there's been a very large emphasis from some places where I was learning where they told me anytime you get behind the pulpit as a missionary, your one job is you need to preach need and compassion and urgency. That's what you preach, nothing else. You preach there's a need. You preach you need to be compassionate. You need to preach uh, that you are willing to sacrifice. You must be willing to sacrifice and do and go and give anything, whatever it takes, and that is your one and only message. Sacrifice your kids, your money, your health, your family, whatever. And, and I do not for a second want to downplay the importance of those things at all. That is 100% biblical. <laughs> but the question that I want to focus on tonight is not what is important and what is true. I, wanna, I want us to focus, if you will, with me for a few moments on this idea of what is central, what is foundational to this thing that we call missions. What is cause and what is effect? What is cart and what is horse, if you follow me? I want to say this, that if the primary foundational cause and driving motor for missions is human ignorance and need, in other words, that our compassion has to be the number one thing that moves us and drives us, what's going to happen? You're going to find out pretty quickly, and some people quicker than others, a lot of you are more patient than I am, uh, but you'll find out pretty quickly that there's a problem with that because people stink. Please forgive my French. Brother Kim's, I don't know if you're here, that's not really French, is it? No, okay. <laughs> but people stink. It's one thing to look at pictures of people suffering and again, please do not misunderstand me. If we're not compassionate, if, if our heart does not break at seeing what is going on in Syria and Iraq and that, that area of the world, if it does not break to move us to help them, the ones who are here, and to send people to go and to give, we are messed up. 
of course we need to be compassionate. But what I'm saying is that if the, the central primary motor and all of our motivation is simply compassion and nothing else, you know, a lot of those people who are needy, they'll stab you in the back. Missionaries, can I get an amen? They will. This we see in the Bible over and over again that people are not foundationally good. People are not born neutral. They're not born, well, okay, now I'm going to decide, and and this is the message that we see in every single Disney movie, don't we? Uh, That you get to choose. Are you going to be a hero or a villain? I have little kids, so I think about Disney a lot. But that's the message that we get. It's either you get to choose to be good or you get to choose to be bad, but the Bible tells us that's not the way we are. We are born in sin, we are born in iniquity, and we naturally gravitate toward that. If our primary motivator is simply compassion or need, then we're going to get burnt out, we're going to be frustrated, we're going to be disappointed in people constantly, because they don't live up to that standard, they never will. They're going to fail you over and over and over again. Even the best people so many times in our ministry fail. And you know what? Maybe they think about uh, me as a good pastor. I hope they do. I don't know. But you know what? I fail. And if our primary motivation is people, people are imperfect. We're in trouble. That's why I think the seeker-sensitive movement is very absurd We see churches filling up in Barcelona with people hearing about how they're great, how they're loved, how they can have a better life, a better job, a better car. And these people, here's the problem, they don't have a hunger for God. They have a hunger for God's stuff. They want God's things. How are we going to adapt our church setting to try to bring people in when they don't want God? A lot of people see my wife and she's a very good looking lady. I hope she watches this and I'll get brownie points for that. <laughs> but a lot of people assume that, that she was a gold digger and I must have really great support. Uh, but a lot of these people that come in, they're, they're like gold diggers and then they see your bank balance and they say, okay, never mind. Has that ever happened to your church? I guarantee you it has. People come in and they say, okay, what do you have for me? Do you have this? Do you have that? Can you provide this? Oh, you want me to give. You want me to take off my cross and die. You want me to deny myself. You want me to live for others and live for Christ. Okay, I'll call you. It happens a lot, doesn't it? If people are first and foremost, our motivation and our motor, we're in trouble. And so I say this, missions is not looking at people and thinking they deserve God. It's looking at our great God and saying he is worthy of their worship. Our God is perfect. Our God is holy, our God is glorious, and he deserves worship from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. That is not to say we we don't be compassionate and we don't be urgent and we don't respond to need. Of course we do, but we're going to burn out in our Christian life, and I say this from experience. If our primary foundational motor is not the glory of God. I've noticed some effects of this kind of teaching and this kind of focus in and through myself. And and I want to share a couple things before we dive into the text. And and just to be honest with you, and this is probably not what someone should do who is saying, hey, support my ministry. But I'm going to be honest with you. Here's what this produces in me. Number one, it produces a large view of myself. 
And maybe I'm a big guy, so maybe that's natural. But God broke my heart recently in Spain. I was preaching through the gospel of John, and I got to the testimony of John the Baptist and those amazing words. He must what? He must increase, and I must decrease. I'll tell you this. A man-centered focus on missions produces man-centered people. You won't hear, it, hear us talk about it all that much as missionaries, but we should talk about it more. There's a very large danger of falling into a celebrity mindset because we get treated like heroes and we stand behind the pulpit and, and, and I'm a veteran missionary. <laughs> Number two, I've seen this in my own life, a tendency to find my worth and my value in my output in my numbers, in my conversions, in my baptisms, in my buildings, and the men that I've trained, and I think I'm a loser if I don't get to check off all those boxes. Have you ever felt that way in the Christian life? <laughs> I need to do this and this and this, and I define myself by how I serve God. In a nutshell, when we do that, what are we doing? We're looking for that primary motor and driver to be something that's here and now and perfect, and ministry is not that. The Christian life and serving others and serving God, it's not going to be that. I read one author recently, he said that it was, uh, uh, ministry is a constant carousel of victory and defeat. You're up and you're down, you're up and you're down. And we don't typically put on our slideshows a lot of the downs, do we? We don't typically, and, and for a good reason, we don't want to focus on, on negatives, we want to focus on the victories that God's providing. And that's not wrong, but I want to share with you that in, in our personal ministry, we baptized someone, and the very next week, we had to exercise church discipline, and it almost split our church in half. We were judgmental, and we were mean-spirited, and we were anti-Jesus, and we were all these different things. It almost split it right in half. The church is two years old. I was broken a man professed faith in Christ, and then a few months later, literally, I'm not joking, he left and became a male stripper. I am up, and then I am, wow. Juan Carlos, the man I, I told you about with the pillows, right? That's a story for a different time. He prayed for seven years for a church in his town, and the Lord brought us to that town, and he brought us to a church building for free, 50 feet away from Juan Carlos' house. Amazing. They came to our church, they served, they listened, they grew, and then they grew dissatisfied. And they grew cold and they grew bitter. And their daughter, I know for a fact now, is messed up, teenage daughter, and all kinds of mess. And I, it kills me. It kills me. They're not in any church at all. The here and now is up and it's down, it's exciting and it's gut-wrenching. You wonder why so many quit. <laughs> you wonder why so many have affairs. You wonder why so many families fall apart. And you know what? The same thing happens with quote-unquote regular Christians. We are, as humans, so very prone to trusting in the wrong motor. We put our eyes on other people, we put our eyes on ourselves, and we, we can't live the Christian life that way. It's been said, and I hope that I don't step on any toes here. I am asking God to control my, my speech because I'm try, not trying to be offensive, but please stay with me if this sounds offensive at first. It's been said that the church's reason to exist, the church's purpose 
is to fulfill the Great Commission. I say that is absolutely incorrect. I say that is a very damaging thing to say. Why do I say that? I say that as a missionary. Maybe that sounds weird. (laughs) What are you doing? Stop talking. It's damaging because we put the focus first and foremost on ourselves. We're saying that our purpose to exist is to make more of ourselves. That doesn't make any sense. Biblically speaking, we're about to get into this. When we fulfill the Great Commission and we obey God gratefully, it's overflow from our real purpose and our reason to exist, which is to glorify God. This will be like saying that a marriage that doesn't produce children is worthless. Because the purpose of marriage, and some people say this and they're wrong, the purpose of marriage is to produce kids. It's not. It's, that's not the reason for marriage. And if you're here tonight and you're a couple and you're struggling and you're brokenhearted because you want to have children and the Lord's not allowed you to have that, I want to remind you of something in 1 Peter where he says, husbands, love your wives even as Christ did what? Loved the church and gave himself for it. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. What is going on in marriage? It is a picture. It is a glorious picture of the gospel. That's why we have marriage. God didn't create marriage because he needed you to have kids. He created marriage to show you the eternal truth that Jesus loves his church. He loves his church. He loves his people with a deep and glorious and abiding, rescuing love. That's how Jesus loves us tonight. And so if a marriage does not produce children, that's not a worthless marriage. There's something transcendentally beautiful in there because it's talking to us about the glory of Jesus and his love for his church. That's the purpose of the marriage, the glory of God revealed through his redeeming love. And in doing that, (laughs) in that process, what happens both in marriage and normally and what happens in the church, children are produced. (laughs) It happens. I love what what Brother Evan was just saying. He's talking about how we're not doing this, right? We're not doing this. God is bringing this person and that person and that family. and, And I'm with you, brother. We sit back and we just go, wow, God, thank you. Thank you for what you are doing here. And as we gratefully serve him, as we gratefully overflow from this personal worship and desire to see him glorified and to make him known, God uses that to bring people. He uses that to produce spiritual children. So what is the purpose of the church? It's not to produce other Christians. That's the mission of the church. That's the job of the church. But the purpose is to glorify Jesus. What is the gospel? I want to ask that question because we're about to look in Philippians at the right motor, the perfect motor, which is the gospel of Christ. And I think it's worth taking a step back. And although we know the gospel, I think it's worth it to take a step back and to focus for a second on what it is. Because sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking, well, the gospel is where I start in the Christian life. It's my stepping stone. It's the ABC. I, it's very simple. I ask Jesus into my heart, and then I learn to, learn to be a Christian. And I want to tell you that's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news, the declaration of Christ's ultimate victory over all of his enemies, sin, death, hell, the grave, and even you and I, enemies who hated God, made his friends and made his children 
by his amazing grace. The gospel is the declaration of Jesus' victory and the invitation to know him. In other words, the gospel is the declaration of something that actually is perfect. It's not up and down. It's not unstable. It's not imperfect. It's perfect. Even though we don't see the, the perfect consummation fulfillment of all that we're waiting for when he comes back again and he establishes his earthly kingdom, we're still waiting on some of that. But Jesus said 2,000 years ago, my kingdom is here and nigh unto you and it is even in your hearts. And it's perfect. It's forever settled in heaven. It's glorious and done. That's why Colossians says that we are now seated in the heavenlies with Christ, with our eternal God. I want to briefly show you three things from this passage that the gospel is meant to produce in us as the heart of the mission. Let the gospel, this is my message to you this evening, let the gospel produce in you today and every day these three things. Number one, look with me at verse three. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making a request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Number one, grateful and abounding joy from and toward God that cannot be expressed. That is what the gospel is meant to produce in us as Christians. Paul writes this letter. Where does he write this from? I'm sure that you remember. He's manacled and, and chained to a wall. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. And as Paul writes to this church in Philippi, this mission that he began at, at Philippi, he can't even seem to find all the right words to express. Can, can, can you see the heart of Paul? He's, just, he's almost uh, hyperbolic in writing how much he just, he's just overflowing with this love for these people. And he remembers his time with them, and he, and he is sublimely happy when he thinks about them and the gospel work in them. This morning, we heard such a good message, such a good message. And it reminded me that joy is not feeling happy constantly. It's not the absence of testing or even failing as frail human vessels. It is in that failure and weakness learning to find that Christ is not just the one who gives joy, Christ is our joy. He is our joy. We're not after God's stuff. We're not after God to say, Lord, give me your joy and your peace and your grace. No, no, we find all that in the person of Jesus. He is that for us. Notice with me that Paul's motor primarily in this joy is not even the people themselves, although he's very grateful for them. It says, I thank who? I thank my God. You may think that's insignificant, but I don't. <laughs> I don't at all. He is primarily grateful to God. He's not just grateful in a generic sense thinking, well, my life hasn't been wasted. I did some good here. And he's not firstly grateful to the people thinking, well, you sent me the funds and, and you've loved me. You've reciprocated what I, what I invested in you. No, what he's saying is I am so happy and grateful because like Brother Evan said, God is doing this work. I think about you and I just, oh, I think about God. <laughs> I think about my God and I give him my thanks. Paul is fueled by joy and joy that allows him to persevere through the most horrible circumstances. Why? Because he knows and he meditates on the fact that God's the one who's doing this. Even the situation that he finds himself in, he knows God's in control of that. 
He's going to go on in a minute, and we're going to look at that, about how God began to work in them, not himself. And I guarantee you, it hasn't slipped his mind how he himself came to know the Lord. Remember the the road to Damascus. God miraculously intervenes in his life and brings the truth to him, and he's filled with joy and gratitude thinking about this God that begins and ends the work. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to ask you a very strange question. And stick with me again. I'm not trying to be weird. I just am, by nature. And I'm not trying to be Joel Osteen. And I'm not trying to be prosperity gospel. But I want to ask you this question. Are you happy? It's a strange question, right? Maybe you're thinking, what does that have to do with anything? Am I even supposed to be? (laughs) Aren't I supposed to suffer? Aren't I supposed to to be downcast and downtrodden? And aren't I supposed to be, uh, aren't I supposed to suffer in this life? Of course you are. The fellowship of his suffering, Paul talks about in this very same book. But I say to you that that the answer to that question has everything to do with missions. You know, our God is not an angry God. God's angry about sin, don't get, don't get me wrong. I'm not downplaying that for a second. But in his character, our God is not unhappy. Our God is not unhappy. Our God is a joyous and happy God. Our very existence speaks to the, the Trinitarian origin of our, of, of, of our creation and the creation of his church. We're not image bearers of God because God was lonely and he needed us. No, he was perfectly, sufficiently satisfied and happy. Look at the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17 as he prays to the Father and he says, he, he says make them one even as we are one. This is not an unhappy God. This is a God who thinks of the Godhead and the Trinity, and he is joyful thinking about the relationship that he shares with the Father and the Spirit. He was not lonely. He was not needy. This was a perfectly happy and joyous God, but he and his joy and his happiness overflowed out of his character and made you and I to partake in that same joy and knowing him and glorifying him. That's why we're here. And the existence of the church speaks to the same. It's both from God and to God. The mission is is the means by which we image that same God, that joyous, wonderful, glorious God. I love your testimony, brother. I love that man's testimony. Ah, that that just filled my heart, brother. Talking about the difference between false gods and Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. He is the true God. He is the joyous God. He is the loving and gracious God, and you can know him as well. And thus we help others to pursue their chief end as well, to know him and glorify him. I knew a missionary in Ireland, of all places, but he told me that he, made a, he did a survey once, and he showed me the video and in this video, he went to the streets of Dublin and he began to record people. And he said, um, what is the purpose of life? And he showed this video to a church to show them just how desperately sad this was. And to a man, every one of them said, the purpose of life is to enjoy myself. It's to enjoy my life. And this was presented as the most terrible, sad thing in the world, and a call to, they are looking to try to be happy in their life, 
So I guess the idea is we need to go and take our misery to them and show them to not be happy. The sad thing was not that they were looking for joy and looking to enjoy their life. The sad thing is they were looking for joy outside of their creator. You know that we were made for joy? You know that we're going to have eternity in eternal joy as his, as his people? Heaven is a joyous place because we're made for that. And there's something in the human heart that says, yes, I know that, and I'm empty, and I'm hollow, and nothing fills this. And they look for it in everything else. Again, they're looking for God's stuff, and they don't want God. But that glorious God seeks and saves. He comes for us in that emptiness and in that hollowness, and he brings us the light of the gospel. Another theologian put it this way, passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord, I will be glad and exult in thee, I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends in worship. Quickly, I want us to look at two more things. Number two, the gospel is to produce in us a hopeful and rock-solid faith from and toward God that cannot be moved. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We're asking for people to come over and help us uh, to build a, a stage and a baptistry, and that's because I have zero confidence in my carpentry skills. None whatsoever. My wife has even less. She literally laughs out loud anytime I tell her, I'll fix that. I'm not, she'll just, <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. She knows me. I'll either procrastinate and not do it at all, or I'll do it and it will be horrible. It's not my gift at all. But I want to say this after just a few short years on the mission field, I have even less confidence in my church planning skills, in my discipling skills in my preaching skills, in my planning skills, in my counseling, in my pastoring skills. Again, I probably shouldn't be saying this, but I don't have any confidence, if I'm honest. I've seen the ugliness of my own flesh. I've seen the, the weakness of my own character so many times, and I look back and I go, God, how have you even allowed me to stay in this? There have been times I've had to beg people's forgiveness in the ministry and say, I'm so sorry. Uh, I was carnal, and, and I hurt you by what I said or by what I did. And yet, and yet, I've seen God do something unreal. I've seen God build his church, one person at a time, one rebellious, sin-loving, knowledge-suppressing, self-worshipping human conquered by this gospel of grace and his power at a time. And with the, every illustration of that power, more I understand Paul's words, being confident, being confident. Are you confident this evening that God is doing a work right here in Lebanon? <laughs> Are you confident that God is going to keep doing it? Are you confident that despite all of your failures and all of your weaknesses, that God's not done with you? <laughs> Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his power. Thank God that we don't have to try to find our confidence in other people and other circumstances or in ourselves. We can be confident knowing that he's the one who started this and he's the one who's going to finish it. 
Finally, look with me at verse 7. Even as it is meet or fitting for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of my grace. I love how he says that, my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels or the affection of Jesus Christ. The third thing I want you to see lastly is just this, that the gospel is to produce in us a sincere and fervent love from and toward God that cannot be contained. Paul's describing a breathtaking kind of love. It's a right kind of love. It's that love that we heard about with Brother Irfan, that love that, that, that is imaged to them because it is a godlike love. We're not asking for anything in return. We're not asking for you to glorify us. We're not asking for you to bow the knee to us and submit to us. We're not asking for anything from you. We're just begging you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God because our God is this loving and this good. And in him, you, will, you have all that you need. Forgiveness and grace and life and peace. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. You want to know what works if we want to be pragmatic in building churches? That's what pragmatic is. It's, it's whatever, whatever you have to do to, to get to the end result. And so many people get so messed up on there. They need marketing strategies, and they need this, and they need that. And of course, we should be wise, and we should try to use the resources God gives us. But Jesus said the most important thing that's going to be the, the testimony by this, all men will know that you're my disciples, is by the what? By the love that you have one to another. Not even, not even first and foremost the love facing outward. And it's not, brethren, listen to me, it's not first and foremost that we even just love each other or we, we, we look out and we love the world. First and foremost, we look up and we love God. And because of that, in our corporate worship, when we come together, there's no stronger testimony. The world comes in and they say, what is this love? What is this love? This forbearing one another, this forgiving one another, this love, preferring and honor one another. And it images our God to them. And they see who this lovable God is. And as they stand in awe of that love, can you imagine with me, Paul, manacled and chained to this jail cell, writing, who even knows how he's writing with his hands tied together, but he's, he's writing and just overflowing with love in spite of his circumstances, thankful to God, I bet you they took notice of the people around him. I bet they knew there's something strange going on with this guy. There's something I don't understand about this guy. And if he's writing all of this, I, bet, I, I imagine him speaking to his jailers and telling them, I want to tell you about these, these people in Philippi. God's done such a work in them. I love them so much. I wish I could be with them. And they love me so much. And our love is such a testimony to the world of who God is. They've never seen anything like it because there isn't anything like it. The gospel is meant to produce in us exactly what we need to keep going, exactly what we need to be generous, exactly what we need to be goers and givers and senders and living our life for other people because it reminds us that our God is glorious. 
It shows us who our God is, and in him we, he, he produces. I love looking in Galatians and seeing the difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because work is something we do, right? When we do something wrong, we can't blame God for that, but when we do something right, he gets all the glory. He gets all the credit because it's his work in and in and through us as he produces through his message, through his gospel, through his son, he produces in us joy and faith and love that calls the world to stand in awe of this God. I don't know in detail what the Lord might be telling you tonight. I don't know what he might be showing you in detail, but I think I've got the big picture because this is, this is what's in the text. Worship Jesus. Stand in awe of him. Worship and love him and have that and be willing to pay the price Whatever it costs, that that worship cannot be usurped by anything in your life, even by good things, even by right things that we do, cart and horse. (laughs) It starts with worship, and it ends in our God being glorified. Worship him tonight.